Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio BX. I'm Yatza Frank, uh, broadcasting here from the Building Energy Exchange in New York City. And today we are very happy to have with us Stash Sukchevsky, local uh, New York City architect who has been a frequent contributor to BX programs uh, over the years uh, and has always been a, a bright and intelligent voice in our community. Uh, Stash is a president of the New York Passive House uh, Board of Directors, um, and perhaps most pertinently uh, represents uh, us, the, the, the city of New York in some capacities, as on the New York City Climate Mobilization Act Advisory Board. Uh, Stash, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you, Yetta. Thank you for having me on today. I'm very happy uh, to be here to talk about some of my favorite subjects. Great. Stosh, um, I'm curious about how you began on this journey to uh, sustainability being such a strong focus of your career. Was was sustainability a focus during your architectural education or did it something that could have came later in your career? Well, my early career um, in University College Dublin, where I studied architecture, uh, was really mostly focused on uh, building in, you know, in the three-dimensional environment, um, modern design realm of creating space and light and all of that really important uh, stuff. Um, and it was really over time later on that um, I began to realize that sustainability needed to uh, take a bigger place in in what we were doing. Um, so it, it wasn't a primary focus. It was part of the discussion, um, but it really came in um, later on when, mostly when I was able to direct things in my own practice, uh, because you have more control over that. Yeah. Was your initial focus in regards to sustainability, was it was it energy or was a lot of people come at, as architects, come at, through the subject, through uh, material selection, um, other focus areas? How, what was the kind of the doorway for you into, into this way of thinking? Yeah, it was really, it started off with uh, having an interest in, in the materials and in, in how they were affecting us in, in our environments around us. Um, and even I remember in the mid nineties, I, you know, we, I started to find out about all of the different glues that were used in the products we were using. For example, MDF, you know, they came out with a formaldehyde free MDF and we started specifying that. So it was a kind of a gradual process as, as we found out more about how these things affected us. Um, and then 
I kind of progressed to um, to windows and uh, envelopes and things like that. And I, I remember one specific time when um, we had gotten a commission to to design this new building and you know, I was so excited and I was calling all these different window vendors. And one of these guys from uh, from Norway, his name is Chell Hatlahal. He he had a window company and he was telling me like, well, you're not thinking of doing a, a double hung window, are you? And I was like, well, I don't know. And he started to tell me and teach me about some of these things <laughs> that I didn't know that much about. And mm. it was really, I, I remember that specific conversation and a few others where where I really learned about air tightness. Yeah. Um, so it was a kind of a gradual progression over time. And was that windows air tightness? Um, was that what piqued your interest in passive house? Because you've had, you've been focusing on that for as long as quite a few people, uh, in this area. Yeah, it was, it was almost like I was learning about the different parts of passive house in kind of a segmented way, kind of, um, you know, just, just talking and learning from, from other people. Um, and there was one, was one particular time when, when the actual, uh, concept of passive house came up and I was, uh, working on a, on a new house commission. And, um, we had a client who was interested in making the building, uh, you know, somewhat sustainable or sustainable. Um, and, we decided to go after the lead program and we had to hire a consultant to help us uh, advise us on that. And I was a little bit frustrated because I was like, well, why don't I know these things? You know, like, is it that hard? And, and, you know, I'd been taught in college, well, you can, you can change the world. You can do all this stuff yourself, but how do you do that if you don't have a huge component of what you need? Right. Mm. So I think that was that was kind of a big um, why of why I started getting interested in it, um, and and as I started to realize how much effect we as architects could change the picture in terms of the materials we specified, in terms of all of this energy from our buildings, then I realized we could actually have quite a big impact. Yeah. Um, so 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 that was kind of some of the the factors. And then of course, in 2009, 2010, the recession happened. And I literally was like, okay, I have some extra time. And I was like, I'm going to do something with my, with this extra time. Right. Right. (laughs) I don't want to come out of this being like, oh, this is the same thing. Mm. And there was the second passive house um, certified uh, designer course that was happening. And so I signed up and it was really exciting. I mean, I think there was 65 of us there was an incredible energy in the room and I was doing it because, you know, I really wanted to find out about this. It was this thing I'd heard about, but, you know, I wanted to really dive in to figure out if it was viable or not. I mean, I had already looked at the lead thing. I wasn't really that convinced by it. And so what else can we do? Um, and, and that kind of, it kind of took off from there. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think also the, the thing that was really difficult for me at the time was as an architect, I would have all the different magazines come to me. I would look at what all these different concepts were about uh, saving energy or what materials you could buy. And, 
and and for your for your buildings and i was really confused because everyone seemed to have be producing an award-winning material and the greenest <laughs> thing and the greenest that and i couldn't discern right. what was right right you know and and i i in retrospect now passive house kind of methodology and understanding of building science has now taught me oh wait you know this this actually maybe doesn't apply <laughs> right Right. So it's been a really good learning experience that has now uh, informed what I'm doing. I'm kind of going off your question a little bit, but no. I mean, it sounds like you were applying some of the principles uh, on various projects. What was the first project where you were really pursuing full passive house certification? Well, in my mind, I was pursuing the certification on a on a large project that we had started which was adding five stories onto five existing stories and mm. i'd gotten a kind of a provisional okay from from the owner um and so i kind of dove in on that and i was like oh great we're gonna make this our first project you know and i i didn't really realize at the time how incredibly challenging it would be to start off on a project <laughs> like that in new york city to do that um and and it was interesting because though there was the new addition which was all about new construction uh the existing building which was masonry below it and and how to do the both mm. so i was kind of i you know i jumped in at the deep end literally right. um and in the end that project did not end up going uh, down down the passive house uh, route but it kind of threw me in there and i was able to then um start some other projects uh which which ended up being certified passive mm -hmm. house projects um so that's how it kind of started but definitely on all of my uh early projects that were not even going for passive house or anything i was starting to experiment with um insulation with air tightness we would do small measures of these aspects that we had learned just right. to kind of improve in, in different areas. And, yeah. th and that was easy and straightforward to do. You didn't need permission. You would just, you were just trying to build a better building. Yeah. And which project was the first one that got certified? And So the first project that we got certified uh, is the Ditmas Park um, uh, Enerfit Restoration Project. Um, and I was really fortunate to have uh, a client who... Uh, was from Denmark and who was really um, convinced about the passive house mm. methodology. So it was a straightforward project in the sense that when there was a choice of doing an ERV versus a you know certain type of tile, he was like, "We're going to do the ERV." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't have to argue with him about that. Right. Um, and and it, it made for a really good team. Um, and we also worked with a contractor who had done two or three other passive house renovation projects and they were in existing buildings and he was not able to make the the cut on the on the air tightness on on the 1.0 uh, air achs that we needed that that they needed so he came to this project with me going i'm going to do this we're going to do this together <laughs> really gung ho yeah um, so it made it, it, it a really exciting project for us. That's great. Um, it sounds like having the right team is really critical to delivering uh, 
it, what is that sort of the one of the biggest challenges of meeting Passivos targets in New York? Is it, is it the getting the right team assembled, or are there other things that are the things that keep you up at night? You know, I, I w- often when I would hear that many years ago about building the right team, I would be like, ah, I don't really think that's apply. Surely you can just convince people. Mm. But in 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 high performance buildings, it's way more crucial. And I've had a few projects where not everybody is on fully on board, uh, or they might say they are, and then there's some doubt there. Um, and so it is absolutely really crucial um, because it's not just about second guessing what you're trying to do. If everybody is fully invested, then everyone will make the leap to being, okay, how are really are we going to push through? Because there's always going to be challenges. And so that kind of approach where you really want to get it done as opposed to being, mm, does this really work? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. It, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and obviously on the bigger projects, it's even more important because you're, you know, you're looking at certain details and then it's replicated so many times that you got to really get the first ones right and then get a system where everyone's doing that that strategy throughout so yeah it's it's it becomes even more important on the larger buildings and the largest project you've done that's passive house certified is the flow chelsea project tell us a little bit about that yeah so we um we started to talk about that project in 2014 2015 and it was actually an rfp that i had from uh, an, a company that was a startup. It was honestbuildings.com. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for different uh, you know, architects to look at this uh, f- for a developer. And I didn't know too much about what, what the developer was, but we, we met with the, with the Bernstein family and found out a little bit that they owned a number of um, commercial office buildings in the Chelsea area. And they had, um, with one of their buildings a few years beforehand, been able to, have, or they had a, a parking lot associated with their building. And the zoning had recently changed, so they were able to build a residential mm. building. And so they wanted to do their first residential building, and they were like, we want to make it different. What should we do? Mm. And of course, I was like, well, we know what you should do. <laughs> Here you go. Um <laughs> And and it was then just what I was saying earlier about you know creating a team around us and making sure that we were able to make the right steps, uh, especially at the beginning when everyone's like, well, how much is this building going to cost and all of that sort of good stuff. Um, but I w- I was very fortunate because a lot of times we come to developers and they have a system. They're they're used to building so many you know buildings in so many ways and and i get it they don't want to change right yeah. they don't want to change because the, it's risk and it's incredibly risky um you know to, to be a developer just there's so many things that can affect you so um we were fortunate there where there was a will to make things different and also there wasn't a set pattern yeah. that the bernsteins had done previously yeah. um and and there happens to be a quite a lot of times when people come to us and it is their first building and that's great. We'll take them 
from there, you know? Yeah. A lot of passive house principles, attitudes, thinking are sort of being slowly embedded, I would say, in our codes overall. You think about things like air tightness and uh, focus on truly continuous insulation and, and, and even uh, thermal bridging and modeling of those things is starting to kind of work its way into our codes. But are you, do you feel like the, our codes are really kind of set up right now to respond to the climate crisis adequately? I think that they um, they need a lot of work, and I, I I think that if I think about the code cycle, and I, I've been on the New York City Advisory Board for for the Energy Code for the last two cycles, and it's been really an incredible experience to learn how the process happens, um, and it's a very uh, democratic process where they get folks from all different um, areas of expertise in a room and we debate the merits of this <laughs> uh, requirement or that requirement and, and all of that. And, and if you look at the history of, of the ener energy codes, we've had so many different variations or um, updates that have been based on things that have happened. You know, there was um, these fires, the uh, triangle uh, fire that happened sure. early on, and then they added and they made changes to the requirements. We had fire escape requirements after that. And, and so they've been evolving over so many years. And I sometimes compare them to the, you know, to your version of your iPhone software in terms of like version one, version two, there's 2.1, and there's all these little uh, changes. And I kind of feel like if we're at version five or six now that we need to jump to another level where we integrate all of these new parameters that we're now very well aware are an issue uh, in terms of energy performance um, and in terms of embodied energy and all of those things because there there are new things that well they're not new they're they're it's time that we yeah. integrate those in a, in a sensible way yeah. and the the codes are are still in many ways prescriptive and we need to get to a performance-based code where you just have to meet a number and you can do it whichever way you want to. Yeah. And, and even if I if think about the, the study that uh, BEX did on, on that 15 story, I think it was masonry building in Brooklyn and yeah. looking at how to the multifamily building, how to make that into a super energy efficient building. And, you, you needed very little insulation on that. It was less insulation than what was required by code. Yep. So that just shows how kind of, <laughs> how yep. much adjusting we need to provide to the codes. And That's so right. it isn't that they have done a bad job. It, 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 all of these uh, advisory boards have really done fantastic job at, at kind of updating them, but I, I feel like we're at a point. And, and I think it's also coming from the DOB. I think that the next... Uh, advisory board is going to look at a major revamp. So, yeah. Well, there's the prescription uh, for 2025 to having a kind of something like a predictive, you know, EUI as the as the target for the energy code. So, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You mentioned embodied carbon. 
this is something you've been thinking deeply about for a long time. I'm wondering where that interest began for you all these years ago. Well, when we were working on one of our first passive house projects, we did a bit of research, um, you know, as we kind of started to understand, understand how the, how PHPP was working and how it was really just working on uh, operational energy. And we did some research and we found that in 1997, the Passivize Institute had done an interesting report on some of the early Passivize buildings that were built in Darmstadt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically in this analysis, it was showing that, for example, in, in a few of these buildings, that the structure of the building was accounting for, you know, 50% of the embodied energy of that whole structure, that whole building. So a significant amount of the embodied energy could be reduced if we just thought about structure. And that was really uh, interesting. It was also interesting to see how much embodied energy went into PV. And and when we try to Mm. do very uh, efficient buildings that have a lot of PV, how the embodied energy is really gets you know, get, gets much higher with all of these PV panels. They're very energy intensive. Um, but but that led to uh, a deeper um, investigation. And then we, on one of our projects, we looked at that in a lot more detail. So we got familiar with the Athena software and we looked at all of the building components in that passive house project we were looking at. So the structure, the insulation, everything from starting to produce that material up to the very end. Um, so, so I think that was really, really important. And the other thing that was was pretty, uh, li- you know, very interesting, life altering was a visit to a mass timber factory. So in 2016. Mm-hmm. I went up to Canada and I went through this whole process of looking at how they were creating this mass timber. And they had, you know, millions of acres of land. They were harvesting just two or three percent of the of the timber that was on that land. So it was very um, well managed. They were replacing all of the timber they were taking down, and the timber was uh, for fifteen or sixteen years old. It was it was. Um, not very large number and seeing the process from start to finish of how they would they would laser tag each trunk they would cut it out in the most efficient way possible to make dimensional lumber and what impressed me the most was that every single piece of the tree was used they were using the bark and the old all the little leftover pieces to uh, heat the wood and then to um, to get it to the the right humidity so it was a very kind of all-encompassing process where you did it all with that one piece of tree. Amazing. And and that then led to um, some some mass timber projects, and we we won a USDA grant to study this in more detail. So it was great because we we were able to hire consultants to dig deeper into what was possible. Yeah. And what are the major impediments to using mass timber construction in New York City? 
Well, I don't. Um, I don't think of. <laughs> that's a hard question to ask me because I, I, I find that there's not that many reasons in in New York City. But I, I guess, the biggest. Uh, area where it's been a challenge up to now in New York City has been for uh, approvals from from the fire department. Um, right. And New York City makes its own codes. Um, so it has a more stringent policy with regard to fire than many other cities. Um, so, so that has been one of the big items. Um, there is provision in the current code to allow you to build with certain elements of, of mass timber. And they've been around for many, many years, but the newer, more, um, the, 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 the type of mass timber that's getting a lot of press over the last 10, 15 years has been cross laminated timber, um, because yeah. of its spanning abilities, all these different great things. And that isn't, or is not in the current code. Mm. Um, there is, an update of the current code, which is happening, which will include that, which is great news. Yeah, great news for all of us practicing um, and looking to do these buildings, because now it will be as of right to be yeah. able to build with mass timber at a certain size. And w there's a height limit currently to how high you can build with mass timber. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I believe it's six stories and possibly seven with sprinklers, but I have to check that. And and it's a there's actually currently a um, a revision to the New York City uh, building code that is going to include this provision for mm. cross laminated timber. Um, so it's been a process, and and many people have contributed to that. It's been there's been a few projects where they've um, been able to incorporate either CLT or another type of mass timber in smaller projects in Brooklyn. Um, a few of us have had, you know, discussions back and forth with both DOB and, and fire departments. So there's been a learning process on, on all sides about this. And then of course, the, um, the mass timber codes have really helped uh, continue the conversation and make it uh, formal, right? That yeah. that some states can just adopt and take these um, these codes and use them. And and they were really, I mean, the, the 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 fire testing that happened to come up with those codes were were really incredible. And and they were really set up, um, I, I think, perhaps to fail, but they did not fail. I mean. Hmm. You could see these mass timber structures and huge roaring fires going on with that within them, and then the carbon uh, effect of the outside of the wood chars, and then the wood is all protected, and these structures were all held up very well. Wow! So it was a testament, uh, and I think it really convinced a lot of people that that these codes were safe. Yeah. What is the selling point? Have you found with with your clients about mass timber? What is it about it that's appealing to them? Is it the embodied carbon impact, or is it is it other other aesthetic um, uh, issues? Or I think it's both. Um, it's both in terms of the embodied carbon and the aesthetics. And interestingly enough, when I took a trip to to London, because London has a very progressive 
uh, performance-based code that has um, had an incredible impact on the use of CLT. So yeah. there's a, a lot of buildings that were built with CLT. And as part of this, um, this award that we received, I was invited as a passive house person to come over and see these wood buildings being built and kind of look at the energy side of things too. Yeah. And um, I was interested in the fact that in, in, in England or in London in particular, they weren't trying to expose the wood that much. It was really just about the sustainability of this structure wow. that was made of a lower uh, embodied energy. In the US, we're much more interested in exposing that wood as part of the, the story because it makes us feel better. And there's studies to show that. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm good with bo both components. I think it's really important if you can do both yeah. uh, because it, it, it's proven that, that you do feel better in these surroundings uh, with, with wood around you. And are clients receptive to the embodied carbon conversation, even in the face of potential cost increases? They, they are. However, there's a huge learning curve with mass timber. And I, I do remember when we were um, pricing out one of our eight-story buildings, we were told that, well, the mass timber and the concrete will be about the same cost and you will probably be able to save some time with the mass timber. Um, in the end, the mass timber ended up being cheaper yeah. um, in terms of cost when all was said and done. And, you know, it, it, it's so expensive now to build in the city um, that anything that you can build outside and then bring in and have right. a faster uh, erection time, it, sa it, it, it saves on so many different facets, right? Yeah. In terms of transportation, all these different things. So I, I, th I find that our clients are really excited about mass timber. Um, it's very tangible. In some ways, it's more tangible than, than Passive House. Um, so it's, a, it's about gauging that. And, and we have had projects where we have, I mean, I have one client who came to us and he wants to do a passive house development project we wanted to make it out of mass timber but the size of the project was such that we could only really afford to have one stair and when you have one stair in the project in new york city you have to make everything non-combustible mm. so there were some times where we can use it and other times we can't and and th this is the thing about the codes that need to be rethought about sure. we thought that they were they were created many years ago in a different time and now things have changed yeah. and our versions of codes that are coming in now are good. They're better, but they can still go further. Yep. So this has been great uh, conversation. Um, I think we're all looking forward to emerging uh, from COVID and I'm curious what you're looking forward to professionally uh, in the, in the coming year. Well, we have, um, a number of retrofit projects that we're doing and, and new new passive house projects. And, and the Ditmas Park project that I mentioned at the beginning, what's happened with that one is that that has spawned um, a few other very similar types of projects. And it's really because those standalone buildings have four walls. They're not like row houses, they're standalone buildings. They have a lot of windows right. and they're, terribly inefficient 
And yeah. a lot of the clients coming to me are like, God, I can't do another thousand dollar a month bill on my, on my, <laughs> you know, gas or my heating and, and all of this. So, so there's a, a, a number of little projects that we're doing and we are now improving or tweaking what we did on, on the first one. And there's three or four new projects coming up in that, in that little area. Um, and then we have some, um, new builds that are happening as well, uh, that are trying out, uh, slightly different variations of what we've done before. So it's a pretty exciting time. Um, we're, we're also doing other projects that are not necessarily passive house, but we're working, uh, with the DDC on some city projects and we're looking to incorporate some of the, uh, aspects that we've done on other buildings. Um, and, you know, over the last, well, I, I guess before COVID, but we were having a couple of tours with some of the city, different city agencies to show them the progress of some of these passive as buildings. Mm. Um, so it's great to see that they are becoming really interested in what, what can be done, seeing that it's out there, that it's, you know, pretty much the same price or a very small premium increase. Um, so, so I think that we're going to see, well, we're already seeing change. I mean, I'm already seeing RFPs where you get additional points for doing a passive house project, Yeah. you know, um, because they realize now it's now no longer something that's being tested. It's, it, it's, we're past that. Yeah. We're past yeah. that. That's really, really exciting. You know, the other thing I, I see, I'm starting to see as as a, uh, an architect doing passive as buildings, but also as as um, president of New York Passive House, is I'm starting to see developers sell their projects as passive houses when they're not really. <laughs> they <laughs> Always might a good have sign. <laughs> a, they're, they're, it's like the fake, fake thing, right? And But what's great about that in a way is that it's a brand. It's it's like quality, um, right? And so, obviously, I hope that none of those buildings have problems. But they're starting to inst install some of the really good windows or the ventilation, and you know what? That's good. This is progress. So, yeah, so I'm yeah. really excited about what what I'm seeing. Yeah, it is exciting. Stash, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to be participating in. Uh, any of the uh, events that Billing Energy Exchange uh, has on offer. I, I, I have to thank you guys for, for uh, always coming up with some, some great ideas and for uh, ed educating a lot of people. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. Bye now. <laughs>